So these days, most people get their information about diet and nutrition from a whole range of sources. <laughs> Unfortunately, they are most unreliable. Whether it's the blogosphere, whether it's books, magazines,、uh, latest fad diet, or even traditional media, the problem with these sources of information about your diet is that they can usually only be considered with a grain of salt. They're not evidence-based, and they're always changing. So people often say, "Well, you guys forever changing your mind." <laughs> no, actually, the basic advice about what constitutes a healthy diet hasn't changed all that much over the last 20 or 30 years. But what changes is how it's reported in the media, and also the many so-called experts that set themselves up to give dietary advice without having any qualifications. The second source of information that is trustworthy and that people can trust, of course, is their doctor. But the problem there is that doctors today are being so worked hard; they have to cram in more patients in less time than ever before that they don't know where to start first. And the last thing they have time for is to give you dietary advice. And in a recent study. Published in the Journal of the American Medical Association by researchers from Harvard University, they found that only about 12% of visits to a doctor resulted in any dietary counselling. And even for patients who already had the risk factors, such as the diabetes or the high blood pressure, only one in five got any dietary advice. Another reason why this might not be occurring in your doctor's office. As illustrated here in an article in USA Today, is that doctors are not specifically trained to give you nutritional and dietary advice, and they don't feel very comfortable in doing it unless they have had further training. Fortunately, all of that is likely to change. Most recently, in the United States of America, there are now more than 10 medical schools that offer. Food as medicine or culinary medicine as elective subjects. Unfortunately, no medical school in Australia is yet doing that. So, in future, don't be surprised if, when you go to your doctor's surgery, you get a prescription for a handful of nuts every day, <laughs> or a 15-minute walk in the morning and a 15-minute walk in the evening, because lifestyle medicine is going to become a much, much bigger thing in the future. And that's not to say that real medication or, or drugs, as we call them in science, doesn't have a role to play. It's just that why not avail yourself of all the simple, natural, low-tech, inexpensive, easy things that you can do first before needing to take the hardcore stuff, and leave that for when you really, really need it. So you could go and see an accredited practicing dietitian. Now I don't know if you know this, but dietitians in Australia need to do five years at university, so that's as long as a dentist, before they come out with their masters in nutrition and dietetics. But the problem there again is that for most people there is a cost barrier. Because the government in Australia, certainly through its Medicare program, will only subsidise up to five visits per calendar year to a dietitian, and that is if you've already got a chronic disease, 
So to qualify, you need to have a chronic disease, and also those visits are meant to be shared with other allied health professionals, such as perhaps a physio or a podiatrist. So that clearly is a big barrier for many people to getting some professional advice. So what's the result? If people aren't using lifestyle medicine to try and prevent disease, diseases we're finding are now coming on a lot earlier. We are now seeing children with type 2 diabetes. When I first started studying at university more than 30 years ago, type 2 diabetes was not called type 2 diabetes. Do you know what it was called? It was called adult onset diabetes. So all these chronic conditions that are mostly preventable are presenting earlier and people are being medicated very early for the rest of their life. In fact, this recent study, cross-sectional study published in the Medical Journal of Australia, found that 87% of Australians now take at least one medication. And 43.3%, that's almost getting close to half, are taking five pills every single day. Now, apart from the cost, you know, to your back pocket, <laughs> people are not that keen on taking medication. At least that's what they tell me, because they're forever coming and saying, is there something else I can do? They're concerned about the side effects, and that's a good thing to be concerned about. But in addition to that, there is some evidence that perhaps not all of the medication is as effective as you might think. For example, a very recent review in Europe of all the top drugs that have just been uh, re released onto the market for cancer found that about half of them, or four at least, about half of them, there is no evidence that they increase survival or improve quality of life for cancer patients. And for other conditions, such as dementia, and this is the area that I'm working on at the University of Sydney, we're looking at lifestyle modalities, um, such as diet, physical activity and so on, that may have a great influence on your thinking and um, reasoning ability to prevent dementia. Because for dementia, there is no drug your doctor can give you. There's nothing to prevent it, there's nothing to reverse it, there's nothing to slow its progression. So you can see there is a huge role for lifestyle medicine modalities such as diet to play, and we believe that the earlier you start, the more benefit you're going to reap. So really, as someone once said, we should be getting most of our medicine from the farm and not the pharmacy. And when it comes to the type of medicine that is best. Most research now suggests that it is food that is plant-based, food that comes from the garden, not from the butcher or from the dairy. And not just plant-based, but unrefined plant foods. So something more like this, which is a beautiful ratatouille I had when I was at a conference in Spain, and not like this, which is something a colleague of mine ordered when we were in South Africa, yet for another conference. If you're wanting to find a very simple guide to help you in planning your meals, this plate might be of help. So notice, the first thing you'll, you'll probably notice is that it's no longer meat and three veg. Can you see that? 
No meat and three veg. Actually, about half of your meal, half of every main meal, should constitute vegetables or salads, whether they're cooked or raw or a combination. That's fine. Only about a quarter should be in terms of whole grains, and we'll look at some of those examples in a minute. And another quarter is best to come from plant proteins, not animal proteins. So does a plant-based diet actually work? Well, I suggested it does. Let me quickly tell you three stories. So going back to those examples I mentioned earlier. So when Ruth came to my clinic, and that's the lady in the middle, and by the way, Ruth is a health professional herself, but not a dietitian. She's done a lot of reading. She said, I just do not want to take a statin. I know the risks associated with dementia, of taking a statin. I know the risks with type 2. I do not want to take it. Is there anything I'll, I can do? I will do anything. And I said, well, if you're prepared to go that far, <laughs> yes, there is, <laughs> and let's really go that far. Let's give you, let's hit this really hard. So I put her on what we call a portfolio diet, and this is not one of those magazine diets. This terminology comes from the University of Toronto in Canada, where they've been studying this plant-based portfolio of foods that collectively can lower your cholesterol as much as a starting dose of a statin. So when Ruth started on the portfolio diet, her cholesterol was 6.1. Within three months, and of course, we tend to see our patients quite regularly because it's not that easy to change your lifestyle. You need to get a lot of support. You need to learn all the stuff. And remember, Rome wasn't built in a day, so that's quite normal. Three months later, her cholesterol had dropped to 4.1. 33% reduction, that's something you can achieve with a, with a drug. And at that university, they have done studies comparing this portfolio of plant foods directly against a medication, and they are just as effective. All depends on your compliance. Another lady that came to see me who had the type 2 diabetes, her what's called HbA1c, which is basically an average measure of your blood sugar control over three months, her HbA1c was 6.5%, so she was diabetic. After putting her on a total plant-based diet, so we brought out the big guns, so that means no dairy, no meat, but really focusing hard on those plant foods that are unrefined, her HbA1c just within three months dropped to 5.8%. Now, that might not sound like a big drop to you, but that's a 0.7% reduction. And for certain medications, they've shown that they can lower your HbA1c by 0.4%, and everyone gets excited at that. So diet absolutely works. And the other lady I mentioned, the younger lady, 42-year-old, a nurse on her feet, has a family to feed as well, but barely walked into my office. She was in that much pain. I said to her, look, I don't know how this is going to go down with your whole family, but we need to, again, hit this really hard. Are you prepared to just try, just try for a three- to six-month period to see if this can help you? And she said, I will do anything. She was virtually in tears. So we put her on a total plant-based diet. Next week, when she came to see me, and honestly, I've seen great things happen, but next week, so one week later, she walked in, she was grinning from ear to ear. And she said, Sue, I just have to tell you, I have to tell you, almost all my pain is gone, except a little bit still in my ankles. 
And I said, really? <laughs> Even I was a bit surprised. She said, yes, really. <laughs> and she's been in pain, for a, in pain for a long time. I've continued to see her. She is now off all of the, her painkillers, and her rheumatologist has been able to reduce the dose of the steroids she was on. So she's now at the very, very lowest level and hoping to get off that entirely. So does it work? Absolutely. The science shows that it does. We don't have time to review those studies now, but I've just shared with you three actual examples um, showing that it can work if you choose to adopt it. Now, the only actual study I'm going to show you is this one, because this takes us to an area of very recent research that is highly relevant for all chronic diseases, and that's to do with your microbiome. So the bugs that live inside your gut, we call them microbes or microbiota, they produce all kinds of substances, and it's those substances that they produce that signal with your immune system or that talk to your brain within hours of eating the food, and they're the ones responsible for keeping you well or making you sick. So in this very interesting study, and they were looking at cancer markers, they decided to take African-American men and swap their diets with African men living in rural villages in Africa. You can imagine how different the diets would have been, and I've just got a couple of pictures there to show you. So the traditional American diet, very low in fiber, um, very high in the wrong type of fat, and the African diet, very high in plant foods, very, very high in fiber. In just 14 days, in just 14 days, everything changed for the better in the most remarkable way. And we know from other studies, in 14 days, you will start to lower your cholesterol, you will start to lower your blood pressure. But in 14 days, they were able to measure changes um, in their gut, showing that the amount of inflammation was being reduced. Inflammation is a driver of all chronic disease, including cancer. Anything that can block or reduce in inflammation is considered to be very desirable. In addition, they were able to show that when the American African men started eating this high-fiber, plant-based, rural African diet, they were making more butyrate in their gut. Now, what on earth is butyrate? Butyrate is what we call a short-chain fatty acid. This is something that the good bugs make when they ferment the fiber that you eat. So we can't digest the fiber, our enzymes can't do it. That's meant to be the food for the good guys to look after you. When they ferment it, they make butyrate. And butyrate has been studied now for 20-plus years, is an incredibly important molecule that protects you against cancer, um, that gets absorbed into your body and does many other wonderful things in your liver. The other thing that happened, the men who switched to the... Um, <coughs> excuse me, to the... Uh, to the American diet, the rural Africans switched to the Western-style food, increased their production by 400% of what we call secondary bile acids. And the other way around, it was a 70% reduction. Now, again, why are you telling me this? What are secondary bile acids? If we could block inside your gut the production of secondary bile acids, you probably would never get colon cancer. So secondary bile acids are converted from the first or the primary bile acids that your liver makes and gets squirted from your gallbladder into your gut to help digest fats when you eat. But the bad bugs that can live in our gut convert these to secondary, and these are cancer-causing substances. So in just 14 days, 
These men, by switching their diets, changing the whole microbiome, and we can already measure inside what is going on. The problem is it's all silent, right? If you could feel it, you'd be watching every mouthful. So my belief, my great belief is that every meal is an opportunity to either heal yourself or harm yourself. Okay? While you can't feel it, things are happening. Within hours of eating, things happen in your gut. And there is cross-signaling, not just to the brain, but to other organs in the body and to your immune system. So every meal, as I see it, is an opportunity. The question is, what are you doing with it? Let's quickly look at some of the foods that you could start eating more or you could swap to. So for example, instead of a slab of steak, you could switch to eating more beans or exclusively go beans. Beans in most traditional societies were the original meat from the soil. And many studies show that when you feed men with beans instead of meat, they're really happy because beans fill you up. Beans are very, very filling, and they also have an extremely low glycemic index, which means they're the perfect food for anyone with insulin resistance or diabetes. When it comes to carbohydrate foods, instead of eating that white rice or that fluffy white bread that you might have, switch to the whole grain forms, like nature intended. Whole grain carbohydrates do all the right things in the body. They feed your hungry microbiome, and they can have very low glycemic indexes, like barley. And glycemic index is just a measure of how quickly a food will raise your blood sugar and then your insulin level. And with your bread, of course, we're going to go sourdough and heavy and grainy and dense and seeded, but instead of the margarines and butters, people always ask, which is better? Uh, neither. <laughs> Use traditionally produced, or at least produced in the way that oil used to be produced, extra virgin plant oils, such as extra virgin olive oil. Briefly, this morning it was mentioned um, that compounds called polyphenols are very important for uh, slowing down premature aging. They're important for everything. Extra virgin olive oil is loaded in polyphenols, but you won't get that in Nutalex, you won't get that in butter. And why not make vegetables the centre stage? Why relegate them to a side dish? In traditional societies, vegetables were the dish. So this is just an example of a village stew from Greece, and it's whatever's in season. Here's another example of a main dish, not a side dish, with green beans, because they're in season. And in Spain, they have um, uh, this word sofrito, and sofrito just means this combination of extra virgin olive oil, onions, and tomato. And there's something really important in that combination, which is used in many, many recipes in the Mediterranean, because it's very high in antioxidants and anti-inflammatory phytonutrients. And when it comes to vegetables as sides, don't forget the dark leafy greens. These are crucial for your brain, for your eyes, and for your blood vessels, particularly because they're very rich in something called lutein. And the only two places in your body that lutein gets concentrated in are the back of your eyes, the macula, and in your brain. Lutein is a potent antioxidant, and you only get it from these very dark leafy green vegetables. And what about fruit? 
What about fruit? In Australia, it's just fruit. Everyone wants a biscuit or a pudding or a dessert. But in traditional societies, fruit was the snack and fruit was the dessert. I think we need to rediscover that because the recent research suggests that fruit is strongly protective against stroke. And if you're really feeling peckish for something else between meals, don't forget those nuts and seeds. We've known now for more than 20 years that people who consume nuts or seeds five times a week or more, compared to once a week or less, have a 50% lower risk of heart attack. Yet when I first started practicing, the Heart Foundation used to say, avoid nuts. Remember those days? They're high in fat. We've now come to learn that oils ain't oils. There are different types of fats. What you want is a fats in their natural food matrix that come with all those phytonutrients, the antioxidants, and that you mostly get in the actual skin of the nuts. And let's not forget water, the original drink. If you only switched all those sugary drinks just to plain water already, you'd be making uh, great gains in terms of your health care. Five glasses a day, minimum. Yes, if you can do six to eight, but at five glasses a day, we already have evidence that that probably will reduce your risk of heart attack, stroke, and possibly bladder cancer. So, why wait? As my six-year-old nephew recently said when he told his auntie he wanted a Nike T-shirt, he said, auntie, just do it. <laughs> and take the whole family on the journey with you. Delegate, share the responsibility for procuring the food, preparing the food, and the wash-up arrangements. And don't forget to pass on the legacy. Teach food literacy. It's not being taught at school anymore, certainly not the way it was when I was at school. If you don't teach them, who will? And remember to take time to enjoy those meals with somebody you love, you love, your family, your friends. The research clearly shows the more meals that you cook at home and eat with the family, the healthier is your diet. So just in wrapping up, it's never too late to start. Whatever your age, whatever your goal in life, you will still get benefits. But the earlier you start, the better. For example, for dementia, we now believe to treat dementia, you need to start when you're 30. All these diseases take decades to develop. Small changes can make a big difference. Simply switching that white rice to whole grains like bulgur wheat or frica can make a significant uh, difference to your blood glucose and insulin levels after meals. I clearly believe that food as medicine will be part of the future and a very big part because we have an aging population. We have increasing risks of chronic diseases. Yes, we're getting better at managing some, treating some. So survival rates, for example, for breast cancer have increased, but the incidence for breast cancer continues to go up. So the only solution to that is food and our lifestyle as our medicine. The good thing is you can save money, and you can stay away from hospitals and procedures for longer, and you'll be doing your part to help um, with animal welfare and planetary health. And finally, if you don't know where to start, <laughs> need some inspiration, this book that I've just recently published has 150 plant-based recipes that even a dedicated carnivore will enjoy. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Well, Sue, the questions are pouring in. <laughs> We're not going to be able to get to all of them. But the good news is they'll be able to ask you these questions afterwards. You'll be in the, in the speaker's booth. So, but let me put a couple to you. First of all, what do you think about vitamin supplements, or, how can, or can you get everything you need from a good diet even today with the soil depletion that we mm. hear about? That's a big question. I'm going to try and mm. summarize okay. it quickly. <laughs> Most things you can get from a whole foods, plant-based diet. There are some areas, such as, for example, vitamin B12, that you do need to supplement with. The concern at the moment in science with just taking any vitamin and mineral supplement is that we're getting studies now that are showing us that some of these do more harm than good. Hmm. For example, years ago, if you had osteoporosis uh, or you were postmenopausal woman, the first thing the doctor would do is put you on a calcium supplement until the New Zealanders <laughs> discovered that the women taking high-dose calcium supplements were dying off early from heart attack and stroke. So there is a strong move now to take pills, vitamins, minerals, only when really needed under the guidance of a healthcare mm. professional such okay. as your doctor or dietitian, not to self-medicate because the best and the safest way is to get it through the whole food. There's something protective mm. about getting it in that package. The, the nutrients are absorbed quite differently. The pharmacokinetics are quite different. Um, that's the safest way and that's what I would recommend. Great answer. Thank you. Is salt an essential mineral for the body as we know that as we know that salt produces stomach acid and a lack of salt can prevent absorption? Hmm. A small amount of salt is needed. The problem in Australia in most Western countries is people consume up to five times more than they require. And if you have the gene that makes you salt sensitive, and you consume salt regularly in your diet, and mostly it's not what you're adding, it's actually through common foods like bread or cheese, which actually have a lot mm. of salt in them per, per serve. If you consume salt regularly in those forms, you will, or at least there's a 9 out of 10 chance, and this comes from the Framingham study in the US, which is the longest-running study in the world ever, mm. more than 50 years they've been tracking these people, you will develop high blood pressure. Mm. So you can't tell by looking at someone, your doctor can't tell by measuring your blood pressure. There are gene tests now that we can have, have, you, have you do. And if you are salt sensitive, one of the things is to reduce your sodium intake. So you still have some, but very low levels to slow the rise in the blood pressure as we get older. Thank you. Uh, this person writes, I have an extremely low ferritin count in my blood. How can I increase the levels of ferritin in my blood without taking supplements? Mm. The first question is, why is your ferritin low? And this is something your doctor should and will explore with you. For women, there are some really good reasons why ferritin can drop low, especially if they're premenopausal. And in some of those cases, the only way you can bring it up is with a high-dose supplement, at least to get you up, and then you might need a low-dose one or food could hold you there. Certainly for the rest of us who don't have any major cause, except perhaps poor dietary intake, High iron plant food sources would include things like legumes, whole grains, um, certain dried fruits even, and even certain types of dark green leafy vegetables, but not spinach, because the iron is actually absorbed in spinach with oxalate, which prevents its absorption into your body. Okay. Boy. Uh, how about this one? I understand your award-winning book has gone international. Is this correct? Tell us more. Yes, it is correct. 
Thank goodness for that. <laughs> Actually, just, I think it was two weeks ago now, I didn't have the personal pleasure to be there because when you're doing research at uni, it's very hard to get away. But the book has just been translated and uh, presented at the Frankfurt Book Fair. So it's been translated into the German language. Okay. And they're the first country in the world to have it in German. And more news to come, probably in a couple of years, it'll be out in Swedish and Norwegian languages, and we hope in many other countries awesome. too. One more question, and I really like this one. This question says, uh, is it possible to be as big as Roma Julia? <laughs> now, did you see Roma? His arm is three times the size of mine. Without eating meat, if so, how do I get required protein? We only got about a oh minute left. Oh my goodness, this is fun. I have to be careful what I say. But what do elephants eat? <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. You there could was be an elephant on the big, stage earlier. Strong, powerful. Yeah, they eat through plants. Vegetables. Yeah. They eat plants. It's a matter of how much you eat. And, and how you do oh. it. So we work with elite athletes. There are ways to do it, even if you choose to go plant-based. Amazing. Would you put your hands together and thank Sue Rad for her time thank with you. us? Let me offer you a special gift. Thank you, Sue.